Welcome everyone to Sources, Kane Academy's podcast series on history and culture. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, Kane Academy fellow Joe Wood interviews Dr. Brad Lewis, professor of political philosophy at the Catholic University of America. Joe and Professor Lewis discuss a fascinating and enduring topic of politics, the common good. The two of them met up at the CUA campus in our nation's capital. Well, good afternoon. We're sitting at Catholic University of America in Thomas Aquinas Hall in the School of Philosophy, talking with Dr. Brad Lewis. And our subject this afternoon is going to be on the common good. And Dr. Lewis, uh, your work has been on the common good, but if you turn to the front page of the newspaper or most of the news websites and you look under the politics column, you're not going to find the phrase common good in use very often. Uh, can you tell us, first of all, what is the common good? Well, in the most basic uh, terms, uh, so you've got an adjective and you've got a noun, and, and uh, good, generally speaking, means an end of some kind, uh, something that is perfective of human beings, something that we desire because it's that it's perfective, so something desirable uh, and, and reasonably desirable. And to say that it's common, then, means that it's something that's not only desirable, but shareable, that's desirable by many people, and, and shareable by many people. And so there are lots, there are different common goods, but the term is usually associated, certainly in the history of Western thought, with a particular common good, that is the common good of the political community, since that's the the perfect community, that is to say, the, the community that's self-sufficient with a view to human beings living flourishing lives. So you're referring um, there to Aristotle and politics. Exactly, the yeah. There is this natural, by nature, there is something out there, a political association. That's right. And, and that there are many associations, but the political is distinctive because it's the one that provides everything that's necessary for human beings to live flourishing lives. Other ones provide some of those things, but not all of them. But when you hit the level of the political community, then you've got everything. And it's also within the context of that community that the full uh, range of human capacities and, and therefore human perfections can really manifest itself. Now, I want to, um, again, go back to what may be a kind of a shocking contrast for people between what our daily notion of politics is as you and I are talking, there's an impeachment trial on the way that's deeply bitter. That's uh, that's not even the first bitter thing we've seen in the last few years in politics. The idea that politics or the common good is perfective of the individual has to do with a shared good. You know, that's going to be hard to get across to somebody. How, can you talk a little bit more about what it means to perfect the human being and how politics as a common good does that? It is it is hard to get across, and it's becoming it's becoming harder um, for various reasons. But I think the most basic way that you can think about this is 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 the following: if you think about political action, typically to do anything in politics, um, we want to do things that are good. I mean, that's true of any human action. Aristotle begins the Nicomachean Ethics by saying that every action and choice aims at some good. And he begins the politics by saying that every community aims at some good. And, and every human action, therefore, has some end some that it pursues, some purpose that human beings have that's good. Um, 
And when we think about political actions in particular, you boil it down, there really are kind of two kinds. I mean, Leo Strauss kind of famously uh, said this repeatedly. Uh, there's change and there's preservation. <laughs> and so the two classic campaign slogans are, it's time for a change or stay the course. And whether you think what's necessary is a change or whether you think what's necessary is preservation depends obviously on what one thinks is good. And uh, the only way to make sense of, of why we should change or why we shouldn't change is that it's better to do one thing than another thing. And there's a you know very basic intelligibility to that. I mean, um, now where you get a problem is that when you hit the disagreements about those things. But the only way those disagreements can really be talked about is in terms of good and better and those kind of uh, evaluative categories. So there's really no alternative uh, but to speak in those terms. As complicated as it, as it can be and increasingly is, again, there's really no alternative. What makes things uh, common? Is it 50% plus one? If we, if we think about it in Aristotelian terms or the terms of Aquinas, the first thing that that they think about is what's necessary for human beings to live well together. Uh, and so there's a baseline there, and it's related to human nature. It's related ultimately to human nature. Those things that fulfill and, and perfect human nature are the things that are common, certain, in particular certain goods um, and um, certain conditions that allow human beings to pursue those goods. Um, now, there are different kinds of political community, and historically this, this is important. I mean, again, if you think in terms of Aristotle, he's talking about a polis, a Greek city, which is compared to a modern nation-state is very small. And in a small local community, you can expect a lot more common. <laughs> you, you know, the, the common good is, is thicker and more extensive um, in that kind of a community. And in a modern nation-state, I think there's no getting around uh, the reality that it's thinner. So the larger a community you have, the less there is that's, that's common, it seems to me. But there certainly is a baseline, um, and those things that we have, again, if you just think about the United States, uh, the rule of law, uh, the political, basic political institutions that, that we have, and those things that they provide so that people can live uh, well within those institutions, those remain uh, part of the common good. Um, but there's no question, as you say, at the same time, there's great disagreement about other elements of the common good. And, but I think, again, that those disagreements tend to be sort of localized. I mean, there's a great deal of agreement about some things, but there's great disagreement about other things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important point, too. I mean, it, sometimes people talk about contemporary politics, and they say things like, well, it, yeah, there just is no common good anymore. And, or, or sometimes you hear kind of a partisan argument that there's one side that wants the common good and these other people don't want it. But the fact is, a lot of the time, it's precisely the common good that's being quarreled about. It, it's, it's an issue that's, that's being uh, disputed. So it's not that nobody thinks there's a common good or one side does and one side doesn't. They disagree about what it is. They disagree about the implications of it, usually in some very specific way. Um, and those disagreements can obviously be very acrimonious. Mm -hmm. um, in a polity like ours that has essentially 100% enfranchisement, for the adults at least, uh, 
it seems like the common good would, because we measure things in terms of votes and polling so often, it seems like the common good would simply be the sum of the individual goods of the people who can express an opinion by voting or some other way. But that seems lacking. What else is there beside that, that sum of individual good that's part of the common good? Yeah, I would not characterize the common good as a sum of individual right. goods. Uh, I would characterize it as a good that is common to all the persons. So it's not a, a sum. Uh, it represents, in one sense, things that everybody agrees that are good um, and that would be good for everyone. And, I mean, things can be goods and they can be common in different ways, right? I mean, you think about something like health, which is a good that's common for human beings in, in one way. Um, and this sort of uh, well-functioning of the political community is good to many people in another way. But I wouldn't put it in terms of a kind of sum total or something. That would be sort of like a, a kind of utilitarian way to think mm -hmm. about right. the common good. One formulation um, that you can see about the common good that's become quite influential is one that's uh, in Catholic social teaching documents that says that the common good is the sum total of conditions according to which people can more fully and easily achieve their perfection. So that's not, and it's, the, these documents are careful to say it's not a sum total of goods, it's a sum total of conditions, and those conditions are conditions that allow people easily and fully to pursue and achieve their goods. But that would seem to separate the notion you gave earlier of common good as an end from common good as conditions, which I might think of as means to other ends. It can, um, and that's a great controversy among political philosophers who've thought about the common good, and there are recurring arguments about whether we should think of the common good as a kind of, as conditions, or whether we should think about it as an end. And it seems to me that in fact it's both. Um, and uh, happiness is a kind of common good for, for every human being, mm -hmm. right? But, but it's, it's a common good that's always instantiated in individual persons. And the political community can never simply bring it about. The, the, the state isn't going to make you happy or me happy. And even if we had a political community that functioned better than ours does, it wouldn't make us happy. The most that it would do is better provide the conditions for our pursuit and achievement of happiness. And it may do that in a more or less determinate way. But I think the end is a common good in one sense, but the means, if you will, if we think of those conditions as means, and I think we have to think of them as more than means, you know, I mean, if, you know, when one thing is for the sake of another thing, sometimes it's just means, but in other cases it's sort of constitutive of mm -hmm. the other thing. And I think if we think of the common good as an end, we have to think of those conditions as constitutive of that end, partially constitutive of it. So they're not the whole, but they're a crucial part and politically, if we're thinking about politics in the sense of a, of a modern state, we're thinking more about conditions than anything else, given what I said before about the sense in which the political common good is somewhat thinner in, in modern states than it would be in certain other kinds of political communities. Well, now, does that, you again refer to the notion of modern democracies or modern states. Does that then, are you drawing a distinction between what pre-modern philosophy would have thought? That's right, um, and and pre-modern political practice. Yeah. Um, um, so, 
if I could just push you a little bit on that yeah. point, it seems to me that uh, modern political praxis would argue that the common good descent depends upon the consent of the governed, to use Locke's phrase, to that common good. In other words, we have to consent to what is the common good in order for it to be our common good. Pre-modern politics would not necessarily have said that. Consent of those who are governed to the idea of the common good doesn't necessarily have much to do with whether or not it really is the common good. Is that a fair distinction? Yeah, although I think the object of the consent is um, is more to the exercise of authority by whoever is in charge. And typically people have, have wanted to claim that that the basis of their authority is precisely that they're acting for the common good. And again, you, you can have different conceptions of what that might lead to, and it's necessarily thinner in modern states. And I mean, there's also one other element to this, and that is that, uh, you know, common goods can also be sort of transcendent. I mean, it's not just the political community. Um, but again, for, for Thomas Aquinas, for example, the most common good is God which transcends the political community. And, of course, if you were to live in a society in which most people thought that their common good was God, that would have an effect on your political life as well. Mm-hmm. It would, in one sense, um, it would make the political common good more determinate, and there would be more agreement about that. But it would also make the political common good less absolute. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons we have the kind of polarization that we do is in a, in a more secular society like the one that we have, there is a tendency of a lot of people to absolutize political values and political questions. And then they become, uh, you know, they become transcendent themselves. Right. <laughs> and this, or if, uh, not, if not transcendent, they, they substitute for what should be transcendent. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and if that's the case... Are we back to the point where theology drives politics or should drive politics, or theology drives culture, which should drive politics? In other words, can you have a common good without a common notion of the transcendent? I think you can, but it's complicated, it, and it, it carries with it the sorts of risks that we can see uh, today. I mean, you could simply say, look, uh, given where we are, um, the common good has to be understood in a as a, simply as a set of conditions, and uh, some people may think there's a transcendent common good, and they can live according to these conditions. Some people may not, and they can too. You think a little bit about Augustine, the way he says that uh, believers and non-believers both kind of use the institutions of the political society, and they have peace. They they share the peace, and and they make use of it. And that's you know that's still the case. Um, uh, somebody's a you know, believes what Kant says about human affairs, somebody believes what Christianity teaches, somebody's a utilitarian, somebody's a skeptic, uh, they all want to live in a regime that has the rule of law and, and other sorts of things. Um, at the same time, there are limits to that, and you do run into, in, in particular times, issues and questions where you have to take a stand one way or the other, even relative to these conditions. I mean, again, one of the conditions is basic protection of life. Of course, we have lots of controversies about how far that goes, both at the beginning and the end, mm-hmm. um, and th- those become serious political dilemmas. <clears throat> Let me switch gears just for a second um, and talk about the education that would be necessary for people to 
think in the terms that you've described as common good, either as an end or as conditions that are constitutive of a common good, as means, I'm sorry, the conditions that are constitutive of a common good end. What kind of education is necessary for that? Because you know, I think if, if we went out on the street, either into the typical public school, typical college, or any typical scene, and started talking about the common good, you would not find much about the, or much understanding of what you've just said. Maybe I'm being over-pessimistic. Well, I mean, I think there's no substitute uh, for, you know, what many people might consider old-fashioned liberal education in this respect. Um, the deepest thinking about politics has always been done by political philosophers and, and those thinkers who may not be philosophers but approach to philosophy. And whether we begin at the beginning with Plato and Aristotle and, and go into modern times, um, but also within American history, things like the Federalist Papers and Tocqueville. Uh, and those kinds of things I think are indispensable. I mean, that, that people have knowledge of the Constitution, again, in the case of the United States, um, my own sense of with students is they're often, you know, they know astonishingly little about this. and. Uh, uh, and, and about history, about basic history, about how things have been done in this way and at other times. Um, but I would say liberal education is really, and again, it goes back to the roots of liberal education. Why do we call it liberal? Because it's education that has to do with freedom, what's, what, what makes it possible for a human being to be free. And part of being free is being a citizen, and that means making judgments about the common good. Um. You mentioned the American instance. Let me just close on a couple of questions about that. There is a debate about whether the American founders had in mind much of a common good. You've talked about the limits that a modern state faces, the thinness of its common good. Do you think the American founder, founders, the, the, the founding itself, envision what you would imagine to be a common good in a thick sense, or? Were they aiming at the minimum commonality necessary, really in order for individuals and other mediating institutions, churches, others, to go about their own particular goods? Yeah, these were modern men, and um, I think there's a greater variety of views among the founders than is sometimes thought. I mean, there's always a tendency to want to reduce them to one perspective they were all Lockeans or something like that and I think that's false there's plenty of evidence that that's false and, and partly that's because we have to keep in mind you know I, I think it's good to have a broad notion of who the founders were I mean it's mm -hmm. not just the people who were in Philadelphia in 1787 but the, the kind of leading people in the different states and, and people who had an influence in the ratification debates about the Constitution. It's, it's a lot of people and, and a lot of differences among those people. But the most important players were modern people, and um, so I think they had relatively modern views about this. Um, you know, I, and I think you think about a document like the Declaration of Independence, there's a sense uh, of the common good there that governments exist uh, so as to protect... Um, uh, things like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, uh, which are uh, common goods. Again, they're not, uh, in, in the sense that Aristotle would say, the fullness of it, or Aquinas, but, but they certainly are. And in a modern context, and, and, and that's the other thing I think that's important about the founders. I mean, it, uh, 
as I read them at any rate, you know, they expected the federal government to remain a pretty small entity. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, it had to have a certain authority, and under the Articles of Confederation it didn't have enough, so they wanted to give it more under yeah. the federal constitution. And but, they talk in the federal papers about an energy for the government, yes, energetic government. Yes, that's absolutely right. But they still expected the states to exercise a kind of sovereignty and, and to be societies where you might say most of the action took place. <laughs> um, you know, you hear these stories about, you know, people, you know, like early Chief Justice of the Supreme Court resigning because he just didn't think it was important enough. He, he would rather be on the Supreme Court of his state. And mm-hmm. I, I think they all sort of expected that the day-to-day politics would take place at a much more local level than we do now. And so you could have a much thicker notion of the common good more locally in different states and localities. Yeah. And so the trick then was to arrange the Constitution so the competing notions of the common good didn't result in uh, disunity in the Union. Yeah, I think that's right. One last question. If you were speaking to a political figure today who really was interested in the common good, who was informed on what it is, trying to understand it, try to, trying to improve politics so that it really is, for everyone, seems to be interested in the common good, how would you advise that political figure to concretize the common good when he's speaking to voters, the media, to, to the audiences and constituencies that he's going to have to deal with? Uh, I, I think one way that we can think about that is um, is the following. U- ultimately, the common good for human beings is their flourishing. And because human beings are social animals, their flourishing occurs in relationship to other people. And everybody wants to live a flourishing life. Everybody wants to live a happy life. And so it's important to see what the place of politics is within that. And it is a subordinate place. Um, it, it's not the most important thing, but without it, uh, that flourishing that people can have doesn't take place. And that gets back to what I referred to earlier, this recurring debate about the common good, whether it's a kind of con- set of conditions that, that's instrumental in some sense, or whether it's something that's good for its own sake. Um, and this debate goes back and forth all the time, but there's a real sense in which there's the reason it, it, it continues is that there's a kind of paradox there, which is that the common good, insofar as it's good, uh, is good for people. If there weren't people, uh, if there weren't people whose flourishing required political life, there would be no need for political institutions. So ultimately, it is for the sake of the flourishing mm-hmm. of the persons, it's not for its own sake. On the other hand, if the persons who live in that community don't treat uh, the political community as a good, really a good for its own sake, a good that goes beyond them, then they'll lose it. In this respect, it it operates a little bit like friendship does, kind of an analogy Mm -hmm. to friendship, right? I mean, in a friendship, you have to care about the other person for that other person's own good. You don't just see them as an instrument of your own good. You see them as... You want their good, and you want it for the sake of of the other person, and they feel the same way about you. But at the same time, friendship itself is a good. It's a thing that we want because it perfects and fulfills us, but you can't have it unless you see the other person as their own good, and and you want the good for that other person apart from your own uh, good. And the, the political community is like that, too. 
And if people begin to look at it as if it is simply an instrumental good, if they treat it simply like that, then that's, that's when the decay uh, sets in. And, and I think in many cases, um, you look around at societies that don't operate and even some of the problems we have in our own, it's because people have come to see it as, as in some sense, just instrumental and, and nothing more. Yeah, and not to raise too difficult a point for last, but it sounds like you just described identity politics. I think that's right, um, and I think that's a real problem. You know, when when uh, when political issues are issues about the sort of self-expression and identity of groups of persons, even if it were just individuals, but even groups, then it's very hard to see how we're talking about anything common anymore, and and how the differences can be adjudicated. It just becomes a kind of uh, occasion for a conflict. And I think that is a lot of the problem that we have today. Dr. Lewis, thanks for your time. We appreciate your joining Canaan Academy for this. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. Sources is a production of the Canaan Academy Podcast Network. Our editor and producer is Helen DeSell-Zwerneman. We have more great episodes on our website and new ones arriving soon, so please join us again and bring your family and friends. I'm Andrew Zwerneman, your host. I look forward to meeting you again on Sources.